My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. We have a very special one today. I am here with Mark O'Shea coming all the way from uh, the UK. And uh, many of you will know him uh, in the snake world. He um, you know, is one of the kind of prominent figures and in a lot of aspects, uh, you know, snakes, ecology, conservation, biology, um, just has a a range of things that he's worked on, uh, you know, over the years from a lot of great media products uh, to, um, you know, a lot of research, uh, you know, on the ecology of species, a lot of exploration, naming new species. And we're going to talk about all of that today. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Mark. How are you today? I'm very good, Chris. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you. So <clears throat> I like to start the episode by kind of starting at the beginning. And, you know, the, we, we think it's quite normal, but a, a lot of, uh, you know, people around the world might think our interests are a little bit eccentric. And so um, I like to learn how people ended up getting into uh, snakes. And, you know, so I'm just curious to hear that kind of story within you. Do you think that's something you were born with and were interested in as a child? Is it something that developed later in life? How'd that all come about for you? Well, I, I don't know exactly when I became interested in snakes, but I had a number of books on snakes when I was very, very young. And the first snake that I encountered was in Ireland, um, which would sound weird because there aren't any. Um, but it was at Phoenix Park Zoo in Dublin, and I would probably be six, seven, eight, maybe. And um, my brother, my family, we were on holiday there, and my brother and I were taken to the zoo by my parents. And as my mother is opening the door to go into the reptile house, which is somewhere that I wanted to really go and, and, and visit, somebody going out said, oh, if you ask the keeper... Um, he'll take a snake out for your boys. And so my mother did. And I remember the cages were front access, which you don't see as often these days with all the regulations and so forth. But there, he, he unlocked the front of the cage and he took out a boa constrictor and he draped it over my shoulders. And to me, it seemed to be twice as long as I was tall, which may have actually been true because I wasn't very tall. And this was magic. I mean, this was the first snake I'd actually touched or met, and it was mesmerizing. And after that, um, I was off school sick back home in, in, um, in Britain. I was off school, school sick. And um, my aunt said, well, look, you're going back to school tomorrow. Um, I'll take you somewhere 
to get some good countryside air in your lungs, ready to go back to school. Where do you want to go? And I picked um, a local beauty spot on the Staffordshire-Worcestershire border called Kinver Edge. And it's a really lovely site. There's an old Iron Age fort on the top. I mean, there's people used to live in the caves. There, there were still people, hermits, living in the caves in the 60s. And this would be that this was in the in the 60s. And um, she took me there. And uh, we set out to walk. I, I knew Kinveredge really well. We used to go there every weekend for, for a bracing family walk with the pet dog. And the dog runs ahead, runs behind, runs up, off to the side. And I always lived in hope of seeing an adder there and never did. And um, probably because of the dog running around. But we're walking along and my aunt said to turn and said to me there aren't any snakes here are there and i noticed she was wearing sort of sandals which obviously aren't the best footwear for snake country and i said oh there are but we've never seen one and almost oh. on cue i heard a sound i'd never heard it before but i instantly knew what it was it wasn't the pitter patter of a small mammal, a bird or a lizard. It was a continuous crackling sound of something with no legs sliding over dead bracken. And it was coming towards us. So I hushed my aunt, I said, stop, 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 stand still. And we watched and into view came a beautiful male adder, newly sloughed, pale gray, black zigzag, black bars on the lips, beautiful red eyes. And it glided into view and I was just taken with it. The boa had belonged to the zoo. This was a wild snake, my first ever. And to my immature mind, fair game. So I said, catch it. And we both dropped to the ground to try and catch the adder, um, which <laughs> looking back at it was very foolish. A small boy and, a, and his aunt, who knows nothing about snakes in sandals. Um, and fortunately, the snake was cleverer than both of us and gave us a slip. But I had now seen a wild snake, and I absolutely must have a pet snake. And within a few months, I had an Italian grass snake. Now, it's the same species that we have here in Britain, but pet shops couldn't sell British species. Well, British animals from, from here. Um, so that they were importing the same species from Italy. And I had this grass snake, it was a female, and I had her for quite some time. And I called her escapist, because she did, often, all over the house. And uh, gradually I'd have floorboards <laughs> up in the bathroom, um, in, in, in the closet where the, the boiler is. Um, I, I remember spending several hours at night waiting for it to come out from underneath the coal-fired boiler in the in the kitchen yeah she was she was good at getting out because as we all know it's <laughs> a head fits the rest of it will too no no awkward shoulders <laughs> so that that was my my well, first snake and i went from there and you know by time i was by into the 70s i'd and i i i'd got a reasonable size collection although i was still quite young was there a point was there a point in time, uh, either in your childhood or maybe in school at some point, where you realized, uh, 
you know, that, that you could make a, a career out of this or you were going to build your life around these, these animals in different ways? Or is that, did it just, just kind of continue from those early, early days of, of trying to catch that adder? Well, it, it did sort of just continue. I didn't set out to be an herpetologist. Um, and it is one of those words you miss the H off, by the way. It is an herpetologist, like an hotel or horrible and things like that. It's one of those words. Um, I didn't set out <laughs> to be an herpetologist. Um, it sort of more happened by accident. It was a lot of lucky chances. I mean, I'm a big believer, and I say to my students, that, that um, if you have an opportunity in life that looks really great, that's legal, of course, um, you should take it. Because if you don't, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering what would happen if you did. And I've had a couple of occasions like that. Um, see, I went through, my schooling wasn't um, normal because um, we had a test here called the 11 plus, which you did when you were 11 or thereabouts. And it got you to go to a better school. And this, this would be um, early 60s, in the mid 60s. And if you didn't pass, you, they said you couldn't fail the 11 plus, but you, you, you either passed it or you didn't pass it, which was being kind, really. And um, if you didn't pass it, you went to what was called a secondary modern school. And these, they're not around now. This was a sort of school, I suppose, that was sort of getting people ready to work in factories to rebuild the country. Because, okay, we're, we're, we're what, um, 20 years um, twenty years after World, World yeah. War Two, no, less than twenty years after World War Two. So, so the country was still, you know, I remember the ration books in the in the in the in the pantry and things like that. So, so it was to get people back into factories. You clearly weren't academic, so we're going to turn you into mm -hmm. somebody technical. And so I, I didn't pass it. So I went to the the uh, secondary modern, and um, I was top of the class, top of the class, and, but that only went to the fifth year. And then I had to transfer to a comprehensive, which was a much bigger school, to do the exams, two years of exams I needed if I wanted an academic career. And when I got there, I didn't get on with the head of biology. He didn't like me, and I didn't much like him. And it wasn't like the school I'd come from. And so halfway through my upper sixth year, before I took my exams, I'd just about had enough, and I walked out. I dropped out of school. And um, I'd been doing volunteer work at the hospital uh, for a number of years on a Saturday morning. And so I just turned up there on a Friday afternoon and I said, um, I've left school. Can I have a job? And they said, you've worked in um, accident emergency, which should be your ER. And um, I said, yes, yes. And they said, OK, you start on Monday. And I did that for seven years. And I was earning a living. I was building my snake collection. But I hadn't got, at that point, any academic aspirations because they'd been rather stomped on at the school that I'd left. Um, so it took several years for me to think, you know, I'd quite like to learn more, go back into education. And so I, I did some time at a, a college and picked up zoology, but I still didn't have enough to go to university. So I thought, well, Maybe I'll go the route my parents did, and they were teachers. So I thought I'll go into teacher training, and it'll get me back into education. So I went for an interview, 
And in this interview, they said, you don't want to be a teacher, do you? I said, no, I don't. They said, you just want to study biology. I said, that's right. And they introduced me to somebody who was just there for the day from the Polytechnic, which is like was a lower level type university type thing, but technical college. And I spoke to him for 10 minutes and he said, you know, talking to you now, he says, um, I'd like to offer you a place on our, our Bachelor of Sciences in Applied Sciences degree, honours degree course. And I accepted it. And that's where it started. And I was a mature student at this time. We're in, let's see, we're in the um, um, early 80s, 1981, I started my degree. And during my degree, I took a sabbatical to organise a seven-man expedition to Borneo, as you do. So I graduated in 85. <laughs> and um, I, that, that polytechnic is now the University of Wolverhampton. And that's where I'm Professor of Herpetology today. They gave me the opportunity to begin transformation from a snake enthusiast into a snake scientist. And now I've gone full circle and I'm back there. I'm teaching the next generation. So it's, 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 it's great. I love it. And when I walked those corridors in the early 80s as a student, I would never have dreamed that I would be back there as a professor. But then I wouldn't have dreamed that I would have accomplished half or a third of the things that, that have happened in my life since then. So it was, it was really... Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. Accident. Yeah. Yeah, it must be a really great feeling to, to walk those same halls, um, as you said. And uh, well, the, the, so we didn't really talk about graduate that, school, but let's go ahead. Okay, yeah, I was just going to say that the the um, University Alumni Asso Alumni Association um, invited me to events an event a couple of weeks ago, and they gave me a lifetime achievement award. So they seem quite proud of me. <laughs> oh, that's great! <laughs> yeah, what what an honor. <laughs> Well, let's <clears throat> let's. That's quite a story, but let, let's transition a little bit. And and you know that was quite some time ago. And let's talk about some of the various things that that you've been up to uh, in herpetology and and more specifically with snakes between uh, then and now. And I guess where I'd like to start um, is one thing that that probably s some segments of. of of society are most familiar with relative to you. And that would be some of the media related work, but, but the science and exploration obviously um, is intertwined throughout that. And um, I want to talk about O'Shea's big adventure in particular and, and, and expeditions, but maybe let's start with what was the genesis of, of that idea? How, how did that come about? Um, you know, the, the idea for this show and, and, you know, how did that, when did that fit into your timeline? Well, it's another one of these opportunities that comes along and taking it. I didn't, I didn't set out to be on TV. Um, I'd done a lot of expeditions in the eighties and the nineties. Um, and in the mid eighties, not long after I finished my degree, I was invited to join the staff of West Midlands Safari Park, which is a big safari park uh, here in the Midlands. 
And they were building a reptile house and they wanted me to advise on that, um, what to keep in it and, 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 and design of the enclosures and everything. And then I moved my animal, my, my collection in there, which meant I didn't have to pay the electricity bill anymore at home, uh, which was quite convenient and a food <laughs> bill. But I moved my collection in there and we'd built quite a, a large venomous collection. And because of that, I used to get asked by um, blue chip natural history companies like um, um, the BBC Natural History Film Unit or uh, Partridge Films and Tigers Films and a lot of these these indies. And that most of them were based either around Bristol or London. And they'd be shooting a lot of studio sequences of, for instance, they shot, um, they were making a film about the life of a Western Dimeback rattlesnake and they shot all the exterior den scenes in Arizona. But if you want to film the back then, we could now do it with cameras on cords and things. But back then, um, you know, a, there were big cameras and you'd have to get a cameraman in. And the idea of opening up a den and putting a cameraman inside to film the rattlesnakes would be abhorrent because not only is it dangerous for the cameraman, um, it's dangerous for the den. You destroy the, the whole ambience of the den. So you wouldn't even think about that. So, so when they want to get shots of an inside of a den, they build a den in a studio and they put the snakes in and they film that. And that's fair enough. You're recreating what actually happens in, in, in a den as best we know. So I would be asked to go down with, um, I'd, I'd go down with three or four Western Dimebacks and a couple of black tails and things like that. And we'd, we'd spend time doing sequences like that in studios for blue chip natural history. Where, where the only presenter is the voiceover, usually to David Attenborough or somebody like that. Um, and uh, I, was, I did a lot of that through the 80s and, and into the, in, uh, yeah, let's see, through the 90s as well. And then I was asked, when, like I was, I was in Papua New Guinea in, in 1990, 1990 working on Snakebite Project. And the BBC arrived to make a, a two-part documentary about New Guinea, New Guinea and Ireland apart. And so I took a couple of weeks out from um, my research to work with their film crews, setting up interesting species like crocodile skinks and small-eyed snakes and, and um, uh, uh, Burton's, Burton's snake lizard feeding on skinks and things like that. And then I was, I was at a symposium in Sri Lanka, and after that there was a Discovery crew coming, and they said, would you mind hanging and staying there because we, we're making a film about cobras. So I did all the wrangling for the cobras. I wasn't on camera. I was behind camera um, working, with the, working with the animals. And then I'd, I'd quite often get directors saying to me, where have you been, Mark? And I'd tell them where I'd just come back from because they all knew I was off all over the world. And they said, oh, that's great. Imagine if we followed you around with a camera. And I say, yeah, it'd be great, it'd be great. Oh, I'm going to write a treatment. And they'd write a treatment and put it in. And, of course, it didn't get anywhere. Um, and then I had a producer come to see me at the safari park. And she said, we want to film the biggest snake in the world. Not necessarily the individual, obviously, but the species. And I said, yeah, well, yeah, you're yeah. talking length, Biggest species, which is reticulated yeah. python, or you're talking weight, which is green anaconda. And she said, and I talked about both of them, and she said, green anaconda sounds good. She said, 
do you know where that where we could guarantee to find someone? I said, yeah, I've got a, a friend who's got a ranch in Venezuela. And she said, well, if we sent you out there with a film crew, would you guarantee to catch them? I said, of course. And so a month or so later, I was in the Llanos of Venezuela and I caught 32 anacondas for them um, on camera um, up to, oh, the conversions, you see, at least 28 pounds. Any big females? or? Yes, big females. Three cool. really stonking females of um, 15 to 18 foot. So we're, we're well, um, a meter. Um, oh, Christ, I'm, I'm a bit old for maths. Uh, just just go no, with metric. Don't worry about 15 it. 20, yeah, no, I don't know. I, I normally have to go metric. I don't with you guys. 15 to 18 foot, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Um, yeah, 15 to 18 foot, um, big, some big girls and they were so pleased with that. And I was front of camera, obviously they were so pleased with that. They, they, I was immediately offered another film, um, in a series called to the ends of the earth. And there were, there were, they, there were a lot of independent film companies bidding for the eight films. And they asked me to do this film about black mambas in South Africa. But two other of the companies approached me and said, we'd like you to do Anacondas again, and we'd like you to do Komodo Dragons. I said, well, I can only do one film in the Strad because you can't have the same person pop up. They're all independent films, totally different. So I did the, the Black Mamba, and that went down so well that they, they offered me a six-part series, which turned into a 13-part series, and then another 13-part series, and then um, four one-hour specials followed by four one-hour specials. And that was Big Adventure, and it was filmed between 1999 and 2003. And I laid down a rule. I said there'll be no <clears throat> stage captures. All the captures will be genuine. If I catch something and the camera doesn't catch it, doesn't run or breaks down or whatever, I'm not doing it again. It's one-off. It's field work. And if we don't find it... We don't find it. We're not going to use because I, I did know how other films, some other films were made where they'd have hired in animals. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted my background was field work. I'd done a dozen or more expeditions. And anybody who goes into the field knows that you are not successful every time. Far from it. And I wanted people to understand field work, the the ups and the downs. Um to to um, to accept to understand success, you also have to taste failure. You know they're two sides of the same coin, and we got to film number Costa Rica, film number nine, before we failed to find what we were looking for, and we failed. And we the, it was about uh, splendid leaf frogs. And somebody had collected two for the project. And I held these up and I said, this is what we're looking for. We didn't find them. We didn't succeed. But this is what we were looking for. Because I wanted people to understand that field work is not easy. You have to work. And um, it was the golden rule. No setups. And that was quite unusual, I think, at the time. 
Yeah, it was really a show about the work itself. I mean, the animals were part of the work, but it wasn't just focused on the animals. So you didn't have, you know, a frog sitting off scene in case you didn't you didn't find no. one. You weren't going to set that up no. on a tree. This was about the work no. itself. Um, and, and not just my work. At that time... Well, you see, the point is that very often the stories, there were other people, the contributors, who were the people who were engaged in working on those species. And so I went and spent time with them and had them show me what they were doing. So they weren't, I wasn't out there as the great know-it-all expert on everything. Um, I would be deferring to, like, for instance, when we went to New Caledonia to look for um, uh the, the large geckos there, the leeches, giant gecko, and, and um, uh, uh, well, this, we, we found three species there of the, of the giant geckos. They're not, they're not all in Ragadaculus anymore. Who better to be there with than Aaron Bauer? And when I went to look for green-blooded skinks um, in New Guinea, who better to be there with than the skink expert, um, uh, Chris Austin. Um, and when I went down Baja, California, Lee Grisma. So these were people who were known and were experts, and I was going with them. They were my contributor, but I was going with them, and they were showing me. I wasn't just arriving to say, hey, I know everything, because I don't. Nobody does. I just want to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Orient Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orian.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. Yeah, so for the big adventure, how did you end up um, deciding your destination, say, in a given season or for yeah. an episode? Are these just are these places that you laid out that you were interested in? Did you propose them you know, to the producers? Were the producers kind of lining out a series of areas? How did that all come together? Well, they, they were by and large geographical because the, the first season was all in America and um, the second one was in Australia and the Pacific and New Guinea. Um, and then the third was um, South Asia and Southeast Asia. And then the fourth was mostly Africa, but back in South America, so they wanted to go for another Anaconda film. Um, looking at the 13 half-hour films, um, what we would do was we'd plan 16 ideas. Uh, we wouldn't go and just look for something because it was big or dangerous. It, there had to be something else to the story other than that. And I made films about quite small animals sometimes. Like in Trinidad, I went looking for the luminous lizard, which is three or four inches long and um, is supposed to glow like the portals of a liner. Now, that, that was what had been written in a book about it in 1938, glowing like the portals of a liner. It was a very 1930s description. <laughs> Now we say windows and aircraft. Um, and um, the, that was a nice story. Nobody had seen it since then. And it was only in the Aripo Caves in, in the north of Trinidad. And we wanted to go and look for that. And we made the film about 
green-blooded skinks, skinks which actually um, they, they bleed green. They've got green mucous membranes. It's a biliverdin pigment. There'd only been one paper published on, on this in 1961, I think, by Greer and Raises on, on this unusual pigmentation. And because and, it was a biliverdin pigment, I thought it was probably going to make them taste bitter and be anti-predator, but it isn't. And I, I went through a transformation in the film understanding why they were green-blooded. It had nothing to do with big predators at all. Uh, the birds still ate them. It was to do with um, malarial merozoites not being able to survive in their blood. But those lizards were three or four uh. inches long, and we went to New Guinea to look for them. So it didn't have to be big or dangerous to be an O'Shea uh, target species. It had to have a good story, oh. and both of those lizards gotcha. did. And so they, they, and we would plan. Basically, we'd, we'd have researchers, and sometimes the researchers had come along with some amazing fact, and I'd say, where have you got that from? Because I don't think it's true. And they say, Wikipedia. And I'd say, then it could have been written by a computer literate 14-year-old. Now, Wikipedia is <laughs> a lot better now than it was then, but you couldn't yeah. trust it then. Um, yeah. So they'd come along, we, 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 we'd get about 16 stories and we'd then start to really drill down into them and we'd, we'd select the 13 we most wanted to make and we'd go ahead. But we always had to have reserves. For instance, um, in the first season, um, we went to Cuba to look at Cuban crocodiles and we were told by the Cubans, you'll be the first um, film crew, international film crew, that can film them in the wild, in the Zapata Swamp, down by the Bay of Pigs. And we arrived and we did all the filming in the, the croc farms and everything. We're ready that the Cubans were going to film with have gone to the Zapata Swamp. They're setting up camp. We've, we've hired a Russian helicopter um, and practiced jumping out of it in five, because it, it could hover, couldn't land. So we'd, we'd had to practice with the kit jumping out of it in five minutes from a few feet off the ground and stuff like that. So we'd, we're, we're all set to go. And one of our team, the producers up at the office, waiting to get the permit signed. And they said, I oh, can't do it today. Come back tomorrow. So she went back tomorrow. Can't do it today. Come back tomorrow. And so it went until Friday. Can't do it today. Come back on Monday. And that's what happened for three and a half weeks. And in the end, we never got permissions. We never made the, we never finished the film. We got great stuff, but none of that's ever seen the light of day. And we had to then huh. emergency create another film. Quite quickly, I was I was down filming in Guyana by then, and so we had to tag on another film down there, which was a bit rushed, and it felt rushed, and that was the Black Cayman film, um, and you know these are the kind of things that happen. Um, we had got a film planned in Honduras where I'd been in 1985, just before the Contra Sandinista scenario kicked off, and. Um, we we're planning to go there, but then a hurricane went through and killed a lot of people. And I felt that it didn't feel right going and making um, a natural history film, walking on what was potentially the graves of people. So we, we dropped Honduras from the schedule. Um, in, um, yeah. in, the Pacific, in the Pacific Australia series, we were going to make a film about um, Fijian iguanas. Um, but then uh, a Fijian-Australian national arrived and um, basically took over Parliament 
under arms and held all the MPs um, hostage, if you remember. This is in the, when would that be? That would be in 2000 or 2001. So there was an insurrection in Fiji. So we couldn't go to Fiji. We were going to go to the Solomon Islands and make a film about one of my favourite lizards in the whole world, Carusia Zibrata. But unfortunately, there was a civil war between the people on Malaita, where we'd be flying into Honiara, and the people in Guadalcanal, where we were going to go and make the film. So we couldn't do that. Um, we lost a film um, in the third season. We were going to make a film about Mac Mahone's Viper on the Afghan-Pakistan border. And then 9-11 happened. So we didn't even bother checking with the foreign office about that one. And um, yeah. we, we nearly lost um, a film in the fourth season um, because we'd booked lodges in all the way across the north of Tanzania to go down Lake Tanganyika. Um, and we'd got the lodges booked and everything and what we were going to do and everybody knew we were coming. And I'm a, we're a British film crew working for a high-profile American network and there was a credible, we were warned by the Foreign Office, there was a credible threat um, against um, Anglo or American interests from Al-Qaeda in um, the north of Tanzania. And so we thought, well, it wouldn't be a good idea to go and get took hostage because we're not, a, we're not a, a war crew. And so we had to completely change the film and come to, from the lake into the lake from Zambia. So, yeah, we had to create, we always had to have reserve films in case we lost one, because you never can predict what's going to happen in this world. Let's face it, the last few weeks have been, you know, yeah. the last few months have been pretty uh, good proof of that. So that's, yeah, it was, yeah. It was <laughs> we'd plan a lot, and we would never shoot them all. Yeah. So the, so the show's called The Big Adventure. From your perspective, um, of all those episodes and all the places you went, what was the biggest adventure um, oh, as part God. of that series? Uh, <laughs> I suppose got to be up there would be going to Ashmore Reef. Um, that's 30 hours by dive boat out of Broome in Western Australia. You're, you're halfway to Indonesia. And that was the sea snake capital of the world. And you couldn't just go there. Oh. Um, you had to have permission. and we, we got permission. And going there and, and diving for, for sea snakes, there's, there's like, I think it's 13 species there. And oh, we found loads of sea snakes. Sadly, um, yeah, our, uh, just two two episodes ago that uh, aired on Snake Talk was Dr. Heatwall talking about sea snakes. So our audience yes. will be very primed and excited to hear this. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Um, when Hal was in um, Hal was in Madang one time, and he he was doing some of his work on um, on eel resistance um, to Laticoda venom. And and he couldn't he couldn't find a secrite up there at the time I think and you know I was in Moresby and I managed to get one and get it to him um, for him to do some work up there yeah Hal's been working on sea snakes for just so long yeah uh, big respect um, yeah Ashmore Reef is 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 a pretty special place but unfortunately. Something has happened there, and the numbers of sea snakes are right down. And uh, and and of course, oh, really? there, were, there were three three endemics, three endemic uh, Episaurus there, 
Um, Fuscus, Aprifrontalis, uh, and Folisquama. They're, 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 they're endemic. And so I think they may have been found on other reefs, but it's a big worry because there were more sea snakes there than anywhere else in the world, and suddenly there weren't. It, it happened about probably 10, 12 years ago. They just seemed to disappear. But that would be there. Um, catching and meeting a king cobra in, in the Western Ghats um, was special because uh, it was a lovely snake, and I thoroughly enjoyed releasing her. That might have been one of the stories I'd have told you at the end. Um, there was so much. Going to New Guinea, we made a film called Magic Man, and I didn't have any contributors because we were following my well-trodden footsteps in, in New Guinea, where I'd been in the 80s and where the people call me, the Kiwi people call me Gai Gai Tauna, which is the man who has power over snakes. And it's kind of witch doctor, if you like, because they wouldn't accept that it was science. Um, and so we went back and met some uh -huh. of the people that I remembered from when I'd been there in the mid 80s. Um, but there were so many films I thoroughly enjoyed. I tell you, I mean, one of the best contributors I ever worked with was Brian Bush in Western Australia in the Pilbara, on the Pilbara huh. Cobra story. That guy is great fun in the field. I, I mean, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it, was, <laughs> it wasn't just the animals. It was the people I was with and the people I met that made huh. the stories. Yeah, And I tried to sort of... Pull yep. it all together as the as the presenter. They were great. They're great fun. They were really were great fun. Yeah. And I tell you something else. Well, that's great. I want to. I want to. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I was talking with a couple of my old directors some time back, um, and um, they're now uh, uh, executive producers, and we we're just having a, a few beers and a chat and the idea of O'Shea's Revisited came up. It's 20-odd years on. You could go back to some of those stories and see if anything's changed. And some important stories have come to the fore subsequent to making OBA. And that would be, that would be fun, to go back. The old fella goes back yeah. <laughs> and, and, and see, see what's, if some of the threatened species. What is the situation there now? I, I think yeah. it'd be great. I love that. We were toying idea. with it. Love it. Yeah, O'Shea's revisited. I, th I think I think it'd fly. Love it. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, broaden out a little bit and talk about. Uh, you've done a lot of expeditions, obviously beyond the the big adventure, um, and and maybe let's start in a place that you arguably have. Uh, as much or more experience than anybody in, and that's uh, in Papua New Guinea. You've been talking about it a little bit. Um, and maybe we could work in some of the your work around snake bite. You, you talked about working on snake bite there. But, but how did you first kind of uh, maybe tell us how you got interested in work in that region? And then okay. uh, maybe just a little bit about the general snake fauna there, different, you know, what types of snakes, what families, numbers of species, those types of things. You've, I mean, you've written the book sure. on it after all, right? So, Well, that's out of date. I'm writing, I'm writing the revision. I've been writing the revision for 12 years, but it's going, it's, I'll come around to that. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, well, Papua New Guinea was one of the places 
I re- well, New Guinea was one of the places. Of course, it's two countries, Papua New Guinea uh, in the east and mm-hmm. uh, West New Guinea, which is Indonesian in the west. The Papua New Guinea used to be British and German, and the Indonesian half used to be Dutch. Um, it was one of the places I, I really um, wanted to go. Going back to when I was very young, I had a shed at the bottom of the garden, which was my den. My father built it for me. And I used to have newspaper cuttings off the Daily Express newspaper, um, drawing pinned, I think you call them push pinned, to to the wall in there. Ones that inspired me. And one of them um, was a story about Michael Rockefeller, who was heir to the Rockefeller millions. And... um, He was an anthropology student and he was in Dutch New Guinea and the boat he was in started to sink and so he swam to the bank um, and he was never seen again. And it is generally accepted that the Asmat people killed him and ate him. Uh, They're a tribe in in the south of what was then Dutch New Guinea. And I'd got this pinned up. There was somewhere in the world where if you went there, you you could get eaten. I mean, it was just... There's still wild places out there. It inspired me. And there was one about an expedition, a Royal Geographical Society expedition to to um, the Amazon. And the expedition leader had been, he'd gone down to the boat and he hadn't come back. And when they went to look for him, he was found on the ground with his head staved in with stone axes and, and several large arrows in his back. And he'd been killed by a Krina Crory um, war party, uh, almost uncontacted tribe. And then there was another one about Japs in jungle, don't know wars over. And that was about Guam. So they're dated. But these were places in the world that I thought, wow, there's really wild places still out there. And that was in the, in the 60s. So bef- um, before I did my degree, I made a couple of trips to Florida with some friends. And we came over I mean, it was very cheap then. There were two and a half US dollars to the pound. Could have bought Florida. Um, and we came over with a, a <laughs> charter company that that you got the hotel and all the beach sports and all of that, and it was all thrown in. We arrived. We walked out. We hired a car and we took off down to the Everglades, down to the Keys, Big Cypress, and just went herping. And we didn't come back till the end of the two-week holiday. And on the plane home... The company was called Intersun, and they gave us this form to fill in. What did you think of the evening entertainment? What did you think of the... We, had, we did, couldn't comment on any of that because we hadn't done any of that. And then at the, at the end, it said, and, and if we were to run tours anywhere else, where would you like to go? And I reckon that most people probably bought Italy or Spain or Turkey or something like that, Mexico, I don't know. I, I bought the Amazon Orinoco Basin, um, Papua New Guinea, and Borneo. And then I thought they'd think I was joking, so I wrote, really? And I handed the form in. Now, that was 1981. And by the end of the decade, I'd been to all those places and more. And Papua New Guinea was right at the top of my list. And after I'd organized the expedition to Borneo in 83, 84, as I was planning it, I was in contact with some people in the UK, um, soldiers in the war office, who were planning a big multinational expedition, which became Operation Raleigh. And 
they were giving me advice about getting into Borneo and there was we, we got chatting and they said, look, get in touch when you get back because we might want you on our staff. And when I got back, they asked me if I would um, run reptile projects on some of their expeditions. And I did. In 1985, I went to Honduras for three or four months and ran projects. 1986, I went to Papua New Guinea, which was ticking the box for me. And uh, 1989, I was in West Africa. And so I, I'd been to PNG. And once you've been to Papua New Guinea, it gets into your blood. Everyone who's worked there wants to go back. No matter how difficult it was to work there, they want to go back. It, it's, it's just the most amazing place. And I, I, I was finding so many fascinating species there that it became really, I want to concentrate on this for the rest of my life. And then I was asked by Oxford University's Department of Medicine to go out and work on their snake bite project because they'd sent Oxford doctors out to treat snake bites and malaria. And they wanted me to go out and catch the snakes who were killing people, not the individual snakes, obviously. But if there was a rash of bites from taipans in an area or death adders, I would then move up there and try and catch some of them and get the venom. And that stopped. It was in 1990. And I spent seven months out there um, moving around, catching highly venomous elapids um, for that project. And it got, it got so under my skin that I get, I get withdrawal symptoms from not being in PNG. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Yeah, it's amazing. So talk about... um the snake fauna in general, um, I mean, what types of snakes? Is there a high diversity, high abundance? Uh, you know, what are the snake, the snake communities like in general on the island? Well, New Guinea is the largest tropical island in the world. So it's very diverse. It's, it hasn't got deserts, but it's got swamps. It's got um, eucalyptus woodland, uh, savanna woodland, um, it's got rainforest. It's got, it's even until recently got snow capped peaks, but they're melting. Um, it's, it is very diverse, lots of mangrove swamps and everything. So there's lots and lots and lots of different habitats. But it, it's what's not there that you notice first. There's no vipers. So everyone's familiar mm. with vipers. Vipers are a big part of the American herbivora. They're completely absent. Uh-huh. There is a niche there, a biological niche, for a short, fat, sit-and-wait ambusher with vertical elliptical pupils that caudal lures prey within strike range. The niche is there. There's no viper to occupy it. So an elapid does, and that's the death adders. Um, uh. The elapids are a big part of the component of the herpetofauna. The blind snakes, there's a number of those. Colubrids, fairly poorly represented. You've got uh, Boiga regularis that's active in the trees um, at night. You've got um, uh, seven species of Dendrilaphis, um, bronzebacks, they call them in Southeast Asia. Um, they're active during the day in the trees. 
On the ground, you've got the ground snakes, Steganotus, which are a bit like wolf snakes. Or, and, um, and then you've got the, um, the keelbacks, which occupy the semi-aquatic niche that you'd, you'd see Nerodia in, in North America. Um, there's there's uh, a good dozen or more species of those. But there's so many niches that they don't occupy. Um, so you've got the homolopsids, which are the, uh, they're generally um, rear fanged freshwater or marine snakes. Uh, but there are also some terrestrial fangless ones. And in the Vogelkop, up in the, the Bird's Head Peninsula of um, uh, West New Guinea, you've got a genus called Calamophis, which are um, homolopsine snakes, homolopsid snakes, but they don't have fangs and they, they are terrestrial, they're semifossorial, they feed on earthworms. You've got quite an array of pythons, of course. Um, and, and when I was out there filming, I made a film uh, in, the, in the second season of Big Adventure looking for um, Salvador's monitor lizard, and I'm rather glad I didn't find it. Because if I had, the little python I caught wouldn't have made the cut. And I found this little python when I caught it. I'm going, oh, it's a water python. No, it's an amethyst. I wrote the field guide in 1996. I know what pythons are there, and this isn't one of them. And yet I've just caught it in Papua New Guinea, and it hadn't been really stumped. So I went back to first principles and thought, okay, it's a python. But which one? And of course, Antaresia. And that has only just been described as Antaresia papuensis. And I found the first one. Nobody knew they were that they were supposed to be endemic to Australia. So surprises. They Papua New Guinea is, is the land of the land of the unexpected, and I hadn't expected that. Um, you've also, of course, got some boids, because you've got the candoyas, the the um, the uh, ground boa, the viper boa, some people call it, and also the tree boas, and they are so different. Uh, what else? Mm, sea snakes and sea crites, of course, but they're elapids. I'm just thinking if I've left anything out. I don't think... Oh, there's some geraphilids, which are another group of blind snakes, and there, there's loads of species of those. Um, but huh. most people aren't turned on by blind snakes, but quite frankly, I find them quite fascinating. We've just described a new one from Timor. Ah, okay. So how, uh, so I'm assuming a lot of your work over the years there has been really kind of about exploration, looking for potentially new species, the distribution of existing species in, in a relatively unexplored place. Uh, but you also mentioned snake bite and work you've done there. Mm -hmm. um, maybe talk to us about some of the work you've done around snake bite, whether it be in Papua New Guinea or, or beyond. Well, I've worked on snake bite projects in, in Papua New Guinea, in Sri Lanka, and in Myanmar. Um, just up to 2018, we're in Myanmar, and then it all kicked off again, again there, and everybody had to come out. Um, the work I was doing in Papua New Guinea during the 90s was in collaboration with Oxford University's Department of Medicine and the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And my main job was catching and milking um, the elapids, getting dried venom back. Um, a couple of times we tried to ship back, um, under permit obviously, um, live venomous snakes to the School of Tropical Medicine, but the airline 
despite all the players' promises they wouldn't, they froze them. So we lost them, which made us start thinking, well, to be perfectly honest, you're better off having somewhere in situ so you're not trying to take the animals out of the country and risk losing them. So it's better to have somewhere in situ. And that's exactly what happened um, when um, David Williams was at the University of Melbourne, the Australian Venom Research Unit. They basically took over from um, Oxford and Liverpool in the 21st century. And um, David set up a unit um, in Port Moresby at the hospital where we could hold taipans. And so we wouldn't need to bring any animals out of the country. They could all stay there and they could be milked there. And, and that was a much better concept. Um, and so I would go over and work with, I had a, a fellowship with the University of Melbourne to enable me to continue working with them. And um, David or myself, um, our Papuan colleagues would be out going to areas catching the venomous snakes and bringing them back um, to this unit. Um, like, for instance, um, the one time I went to Oro province, which is over the, over the other side of the Kokoda track, um, where um, Australian and American forces um, pushed back uh, the Japanese. And Oro is a really interesting area. And there had been a brown snake, a, a Sudanaja textilis, um, killed at a mission station in the 1960s um, on the north coast on the, uh, of Oro. And so I wanted to go and see if I could find these snakes because nobody had seen one since. So uh, I flew over to, to Oro, hired a... a the worst, the worst hire car in the world, this Nissan Patrol that had candles for land, for headlights, and um, <laughs> practically, um, and I set off and I worked out where the mission station was, so I, I went round to the plantation at the back, an oil palm plantation, and started to search, and I found six, managed to catch three of them, and I'd be phoning up Dave, Dave, would you like a brown snake? He go, you've got a brown snake, yep. And then I phoned him up a few hours. Dave, do you want another brown snake? And I, I got three uh, Sudanaja. Um, and then Dave went there the following year. He got one. And we haven't seen them since. They're still there. But no one's been able to find them since. Um, and that's that. We, huh. They were thought to be introduced, you know, by, by um, agri with agricultural equipment or with the military after World War II because there were no specimens predating World War II. Until I went uh, to a okay. museum in Genoa and they said, what's this little snake that the Albertus collected in, in, um, eight, um, in um, 1877? And I looked at it, I go, it's a baby brown snake. Where do you get that? He got it in Papua New Guinea. So they are, they're, wow. they're a native snake. We just, they just assumed they'd been introduced there. But yeah, it's... Yeah. it's I, so I, the, I, these I venoms... Yeah, so the well, venoms we, you're we, collecting, they were for developing some form of like an anti-venom in these places, or were they used for other types of research? We were really, when I've collected venom, the first thing that's done with it is to work out what the venom composition is, and I, I let the lab guys do that, and whether the snakes were causing deaths. Because one of the things that I did in 1990 was go to 
Karkar Island off the north coast of northeast coast of Papua New Guinea, where they had small-eyed snakes, Micropeki Sikahika. Now these snakes were reputed to be potentially lethal, but we had no proof. People had said they'd been bitten by the white snake and then subsequently died, but that's not scientific proof. What we needed was actual proof that these were killing people. And so the doctors in the area were asked to hold blood samples from snake bite victims prior to administration of any antivenom, if they'd got antivenom, because a lot of places hadn't. And these were all sent back to Liverpool. And then I went to Karka and I caught 15 small-eyed snakes and milked them. And I sent the venom back. And then by a um, process called ELISA, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, it's like banding out for parenthood, you know, in, in with chromosomal banding. And in some of the fatal snake bite blood samples, they banded out as micropecis. So we knew that they were killing people and that there wasn't a specific antivenom for them. So that would have been some direction we'd have gone in. Um, when I was working with um, the um, Australian team, the Avru team, what we wanted to do was produce a Papuan Taipan antivenom. Um, the antivenoms that go up from Australia to New Guinea are very expensive. And the, the health authority, Papua New Guinea Health Authority, can only afford to buy so much antivenom each year. The price goes up every year. They hit this glass ceiling and they hit it earlier and earlier. And so they end up running out of antivenom. And then people have got to be intubated on ventilators. Um, and there's only so many of those. And then people die. Or they have to be ambubagged by their family members, their Wontox with a black ambubag. So it's a, a dire situation because the type, Papuan Taipan is the snake responsible for killing most Pap Papua New Guineans in southern, southern New Guinea. And so we wanted to get an antivenom specifically for Papua New Guinea. And this was done. Um, we would catch the snakes. We'd milk the snakes. We had probably the most safest building in the whole of the whole of the country was the building we'd got at Port Moresby General Hospital, which had sometimes up to 20 taipans in it. And we'd be milking these and drying the venom and sending the venom to Costa Rica. Now, um, the Institute of Clodomiro Picardo at the University of San Jose in Costa Rica are the true heroes of snakebite research. While the big biopharma companies, and I won't name them, but the big biopharma companies that have been pulling out of antivenom production, this university department has been making antivenom. They produce antivenom for Costa Rica. They produce antivenom for Central America. They produce antivenom for all of Latin America. They were going to produce our uh -huh. Taipan antivenom. They're producing antivenom for Africa and producing antivenom for um, Sri Lanka. And, and this is so altruistic. And I take my hat off to um, ICP. Now, we would send them the, the, the dry venom and they would raise the antivenom on horses. And then the, the, the antivenom came back and it had to go through a blind trial um, against um, the Commonwealth Serum uh, Laboratories antivenom, which was really expensive. To give you an idea, the Commonwealth Serum uh, Laboratory antivenom was about $2,500 a pack to treat one patient. The ICP wow. antivenom turned out to be just as effective, probably more temperature tolerant, and $250 a pack. It's a no-brainer. 
This is a lifesaver, yeah. literally. It- and, yeah, I've um, been to the ICP and toured it, and it's it's an amazing uh, facility and, and incredible what they do. They 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 are the heroes, without a doubt. And yep. um, this project was would really go well, but in the end, politics killed it, and it's closed down. And I don't know. I, uh, I, if ICP aren't producing the anti venom anymore. That means that their um, Papua New Guinea is back to using CSL. Nothing wrong with the CSL antivenom. It's just too expensive. Because, and, but what mm-hmm. the Australian hospitals do is when their antivenom is getting near to its use-by date, you know that antivenom, that date, this isn't a piece of Walmart chicken that you eat it a week later and you get food poisoning. It's not. If, that, if the antivenom has not had its cold chain broken, that it's been kept correctly, it is still viable. They have tested CSL um, type and antivenom, uh, I think it was 14 or 19 years after the date on the pack, and it's 95% efficacious. Would you rather have 95% effic- efficient antivenom or no antivenom? You know, it's exactly. just again, it's a no-brainer. But because there's a date <laughs> on there, no Western doctor will administer it for fear of, the American yep. disease, litigation. So the Australian <laughs> hospitals, the, the, the hospitals send it up to New Guinea, and we used to keep it in our fridge. And I was over there uh, one time covering for David Williams, who was with the WHO in Geneva. And I was um, there, and twice in one week I had frantic doctors come and knock on my door. We're out of antivenom. We've got a Taipan bite. Have you got any? And I'd look in the fridge for the, the pack that was closest to the current date. And I'd give them that and they'd go away happy. And they'd save somebody. That's a nice feeling. Yeah. But yeah, who's I saving bet. A That's man? great. Yeah. Well, we've been going for a little over an hour, but I, I do want to hit one more topic before we begin to wrap up. Um, I'm, you know, so yeah, I'm fine. Uh, you've ri- written an okay. We've written an you've written a, a number of books. You know, snakes of the world. We've already mentioned the Papua New Guinea field guide. You know, to snakes essentially, and uh, maybe uh, maybe just talk about you know your interest in writing some of the books you've written, where people can find them. If there are any individual books that you want to highlight and, and talk about in a little more depth, uh, you know, so anything along that line. Well, I think I've probably written eight or nine books. Um, my first serious book was um, the field guide, um, the guides of the snakes, Papua New Guinea. And that was 1996. And that is well out of date. Um, um, you can, you can download it's going to be a download, a uh, free PDF of that from my research gate site because I just put the PDF up there for anyone that wants it. But it's out of date. And for the last 12 years, I've been working on a revision. Now, there are 114 species, including sea snakes, in 19, the 1996. fourteen. There's going to be closer to 200 in the next one. And I'm working hard to get that finished. And... The data that I'm gathering is so intensive. I have examined thousands of specimens in museums. I'm looking at the holotypes, paratypes. Um, I'm trying to get um, complete scale count ranges 
for the species of the really difficult ones to identify, like Steganotus and Tropidonophus and Toxiocalamus and things like that. I've, I've spent less time on the pythons because they are more clear-cut, but nonetheless, I've, I've done quite a lot of work looking at the pythons. Oh, and the file snakes, of course, I forgot to mention. We've got file snakes there. So I'm spending more time looking at dead snakes and photographing dead snakes and taking scale counts from dead snakes than I am from live ones um, over the last few years. But this is all important to get a, a really good idea of what these species are. And so I'm hoping to get that finished um, before I roll over and, uh, and get that published. Uh, I also, of course, wrote uh, big, um, the Book of Snakes, which was published by uh, Chicago University Press in the U.S., and it sold out. Uh, it sold out in Europe as well. And so we're doing a completely revised uh, version with all updated taxonomy. Um, I've pulled 18 species out, but another 18 in for various reasons. So that hopefully will be out sometime next year. And Princeton, I've got a long history with um, Princeton University Press because they were the U.S. publisher when I was working with New Holland, who were an Australian company that was based in the U.K., um, and I did Venomous Snakes of the World and Boas and Pythons of the World, which were unusual because I included a lot of personal experiences with those various species in the book as, as a sort of sound bites, if you like, written sound bites. And then I've done um, Lizards of the World with, um, with Princeton and over here, Ivy Press, Bright, uh, uh, Bright Press. So I did Lizards of the World. That came out, what, 20? 2021 or 2022 then snakes of the world came out early this year um i'm working with a, a colleague of mine simon um simon maddock we're doing frogs of the world that'll be out next year so that's where we are with books and of course the the, the slow burn on on papua new guinea and i love writing i i, I love writing and i'm working on papers all the time because describing new species I think I've got 11 snakes under my belt at the moment. There's another four on the way. Um, I just thoroughly enjoy writing and publishing. Great. Well, how can people, if they're interested in the, in the more recent book, The Snakes of the World, um, where, can they, where can they go to uh, get a copy of that? Obviously, the easiest thing to obtain my books is to go onto Amazon. Um, the current books are probably all on there. Um, mm -hmm. if a book is out of print and hard to find, if somebody wants to find a hard copy of, of, um, the, uh, Guide to the Snakes of Papua New Guinea, and they don't mind paying a couple of hundred dollars for it, then they can go on to abooks.com or biblio.com in the US. Obviously it's slightly different addresses over here. Um, and, and, and you can find second hand books there. I don't think there any of them are really hard to, to find if you prepared to look for them and now the internet's made it so much easier. i when i used to film when i had a day off i would go book shopping i'd find an old bookshop and i'd go in and i'd just explore and see what i could find and it was like herping for books it's the same huh. find something a gem that you oh wow you know i got a copy of um vital brazil's um book on on snake bite in in a second-hand bookshop in 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 um in uh, Rio de Janeiro, and that made, made my day. Um, I got some quite curious books when I was in Havana, Cuba, in, in their book market. 
And the whole time there's this guy walking alongside drawing me. And then he presented me with this drawing he'd done of me. So, <laughs> you know, I used to go book shopping. But the internet, the internet has to some degree despoiled that because you don't get bargains because everybody can check what the books they're selling are worth. And you can find what everybody's got and order it from anywhere in the world. So it's taken away that the search, the hunt. Um, I was I, so David Attenborough, who who I, I, I know uh, slightly. You know, we corresponded a few times. He he um, in one of his programs, he said that because um, he collects books on New Guinea like myself, and he says that um, it's the search. It's the hunter-gatherer instinct when somebody goes into a bookshop to look for a book in their subject area that they haven't got and the feeling of triumph when you find it. Amazing. Well, let's, let's shift gears again and let's imagine that you and I are sitting around a campfire in New Guinea um, after a hard day out looking for snakes. And I turn to you and ask you to tell me your best snake story. How long have you got? I, it's, this is probably the hardest Just one. Question. Just one story. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Okay. I'll go back to the King Cobra in, in India. Um, I caught a, a female, basically Bruce Young. Um, he, he works, um, he was working on where the snakes could hear sound. You're probably aware that male King Cobras are supposed to growl. Why do they growl? Is it a form of communication? And he'd recorded some captive male King Cobras growling. And he wanted to see if, um, female king cobras responded to it at all. Because we'll go, oh, well, snakes are deaf. No, they, they, they hear a different frequency. They're, they're detecting something different to us. I'm not a physiologist. Hands up, I'm not a physiologist. But um, uh, they, they, they do detect vibrations through the lower jaw. So, and, and any low-frequency sound is going to create vibrations. So could king cobras hear the growl of the male? So what we needed to do was catch a naive king cobra that wasn't a captive animal obviously and so we set about doing that and i caught a female she was about um about nine eight nine nine foot thereabouts and we'd built an enclosure um big out, out um, by where we were staying we built this uh out of tenting and it was about six foot high, held in place with, with all the way around with posts. And we were going to play the King Cobra growl and put the king, the female king in there and leave her to settle down and then play the King Cobra growl and see if she responded and film that. And it, it was really a bit of bucket science. There was, there was, it, 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 w it wouldn't pass muster as a scientific test, but we just thought we'll see if anything happens. And so we, we caught this king cobra and we'd put it, I'd caught her and put her in, in the enclosure. And I was there with the cameraman on one side and her niece, who was an Indi a really good Indian um, snake catcher from Bangalore, he was, he was um, our local guy and he was on the other side of the, the uh, in enclosure. And 
I'm talking to the cameraman, sat down, and Anise, we'd got little windows cut in the tenting so we could see through, put the camera through and see through without the snake really physically seeing us. And, and, and he shouted me in one of those shout whispers when somebody wants you to hear them and they're some distance off, but they don't want to shout. It's, 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 an, it's an odd, go out, look, Mark, look out. And he pointed up and I looked up and the King Cobra had climbed up one of the posts and was actually looking down at the top of my head. She was on top and she was looking down at me. So I picked up a snake <laughs> and I pushed her back in and we let her settle down again. And then I'm sat there just whispering to the cameraman. And I looked to the front and she'd come across to my window. And she, when she got to my window, I turned and saw her. And she must have recognized front of face from side of face because I saw her pupils move. She looked at me and then she started to rock. She was hooding and she started to rock backwards and forwards. And I thought, is she going to strike at me? I felt she was too far away to do that, but she was looking right up. And I, I felt that she was saying to me, what have I done to you? Why have you caught me? Why am I here? What's this about? I, huh. I haven't done anything to you. I felt incredibly guilty. This snake, people will laugh, but I felt she was questioning me why I had done this to her. And I only wanted to do one thing. All I wanted to do was release her. If somebody said to me, Mark, you can take that King Cobra back to the safari park. I'd have said, no, thank you. I want to put her back in the wild. And for me, the best moment in the entire film was when I carried her down to a riverbank near where we collected her. And there was a beautiful stream that ran to a little waterfall and then dropped away. And it was just a lovely scene. And I took her and I put her into the water and she swam away, swam to the waterfall, went over the waterfall, swam out of my life. And I felt the gift, the guilt lift and I felt elated that I'd given her the most important thing to, for her, freedom. Uh, what a great story. It's got so many components to it. Um, well, that's great. I've actually just reached out to Bruce to see if he wanted to be on the podcast to talk about um, uh, some things such as, you know, hearing in snakes and, and other things like that. So that's in another interesting connection. But great. Well, we made two films. We did two films together and we did one on spitting cobras, which was a lot of fun. And that was with... Um, um, oh God, Teroff! Just I've just forgotten his I've just forgotten his name. Um, Don Strydem was I did two films with Don Strydem, but this oh, was okay. with Don Strydem, and, and it was so funny doing these spitting cobras when we're getting them to spit and we're measuring Bruce is measuring the spit. Oh God, it was that was uh, that was a fun film. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll have to I'll have to ask him about that if I get him on the podcast. So. But um, great. Well, I, I really uh, enjoyed this and uh, really appreciated uh, you taking the time to uh, be with all of us today. And I would just thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals, too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild. Mm -hmm.